Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title, you get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Guy Lachwan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's kick it off with the basics. Who are you? What do you do? And why do you do it? I'm a lawyer that specializes in uh, startups. I uh, represent uh, technology companies. I'm a partner in a law firm called Pearl Cohen. Uh, it's one of the biggest law firms uh, in Israel. Um, quite a unique firm. Focuses a lot on technology, represents uh, a lot of startups, entrepreneurs, uh, investors, corporates, and so on. I have a team of uh, about 11, 12 lawyers today that helps me and together we are uh, representing over 100 startups. A startup lawyer is a very different uh, creature than compared to your other, you know, your typical uh, real estate lawyer. It is not the sort of person that would go to court, but I think the majority of the startups that have, you know, a solid product, starting to raise money, starting to interact with the outside world, have a lawyer already. I am doing this every day because I am helping people create things. I'm helping people take an idea and really fulfill it and really make something out of it. I, the last time I wore my uh, lawyer robe was, I think, in 2006. <laughs> okay. And uh, that's a, a quite a long, long while ago. Um, I actually don't know where the robe is. So... Uh, <laughs> 
I have no intention of doing this. My my aim is to, I mean, if my client found himself in court, then something got wrong in the process. This is really not something we are trying to, you know, achieve. <clears throat> the aim is really to be, in a way, like another co-founder to our startups, to really understand them, to really understand their pains, their concerns, and uh, be there to, you know, assist them and facilitate what they need. I mean, help them reach their objectives. It's a totally different dynamic. I uh, expected when uh, when the startup I'm working with, when we got uh, more invested into the relationship with Pelco and as part of the process of starting the company and, uh, and getting ready to raise a round, I expected that when I see my lawyer's name in my inbox, I'll always be cringing. Like, <laughs> and I have to say, it wasn't the case. And this was kind of what made me want to get you on the show. The fact that this is a different relationship to the one I thought of. In past ventures, every time I got in touch with a lawyer, it's because something, something went wrong. Right. Uh, we're being sued. We're being threatened. We don't know what to do. Something terrible had happened. When you work with a startup, you spend time with the co-founders or the C-suites, right? That's a very, very intimate relationship. And the things you work on with them. So when in a startup's journey do you sit down with them? Because we don't speak every week. But when we do speak, what's it about? What are the scenarios or life stages that bring us together? It's very easy to lose, you know, personal touch with uh, the startup that you represent, especially if you have, you know, a wide range of startups and a lot of clients and everybody wants, you know, a personal touch. But I'm really doing an effort to uh, keep myself as involved as possible. You add a lot of business elements to your advice, things that stretch far beyond just, you know, regular legal advice. What does the law say? Exactly. And um, you also, since you're, I'm doing it for, for quite a long time already, and I've really witnessed a lot of startups. Some of them succeeded big time. Some of this, some of them failed big time. As you mentioned before, I really have some sort of uh, overview of the industry and advice that I could give, you know, people that consult with me on how would this be looked, on how would this be treated, and so on. So the approach is really to be supportive of of their of the businesses. It also requires you to work at the crazy hours that your clients are working uh, at. East Coast, West Coast, Europe, national holidays. In Japan. Around yeah. the clock. And uh, it also requires you to use every possible media to interact with your uh, clients. I mean, there isn't any social media. I think the only social media channel that was not occupied by my clients is Instagram yet. But other, other than that, Facebook, LinkedIn, WhatsApp, any possible other application are basically our way to communicate with them. And this is not common in my industry. I mean, normally you have a secretary that creates a buffer, but here it's totally open, and and I want them to feel that they that they can really pick up the phone in the middle of the night, and I will be there to to assist them. It is very unique, and I have to say, I did not expect my relationship with you guys to be this way. Like the availability, we spoke because we were only starting 
to get ready for a potential round eight, nine months before actually going about and, and, and starting to raise money. So we're sitting down in a room and you're like helping us simulate what are some of the different scenarios that are available for us. Um, how, are, how should we be thinking about some of the options that we have? And what struck me really odd in the most pleasant way is that you didn't try and force a perspective. You didn't try and force an agenda or make us comply with a certain set of behaviors. You helped us think and broaden our perspective instead of narrow it down, which is what was my experience like in previous similar relationships. And then I think that gets us into a very nuanced situation where this is not your business. You are responsible for providing legal services, but it's not your call to make. It's not your company. You'll be there to handle some of the implications, but, you know, end of the day, you're giving advice. So how do you manage that situation in which you're very involved and very invested in a company's uh, uh, operation, but still maintain a certain distance to help you give objective advice? So it's a very good um, point because it really touches on what is expected from you as a startup lawyer, but also this personal style that you basically decide you're following. So um, I think I see many of my colleagues who are excellent lawyers, but in a way they take a very paternalistic approach and on the verge of condescending towards their clients. They're doing it because they have a very strong ego and also they're doing it because they're, they feel that there is, a, in a way, a vacuum between them and their, their client, uh, which has a lot to do with the, in, in, you know, the lack of experience that the, the client brings or the maturity of, of the client. And also the startup itself, which is experimental, is you know, just in the very beginning. So they, in a way, feel that they, are, they need to take their uh, client in the hand, with the, you know. Handheld them. Exactly. And, and I, I think that this is, I mean, not the style. It, maybe it's good for certain uh, startups. My personal style is different. I assume my uh, clients are grown-ups. I assume, first of all, in many, most cases, they're much more intelligent than me. They're doing real stuff. They are engineers. They are doctors. They are, you name it. They're people that have a lot of talent and capability. I'm only assisting them. I'm not bossing them around. I'm assuming that they understand what I tell them. Um, they, un they understand the risk. If they decide to, you know, walk into their uh, doctor with a cigarette in their hand, it's their decision. They know the implication. Bottom line is really really depends on your style and your approach to things. I think you can really, first of all, you need to also disconnect yourself in a way because you can't, you know, survive with having the, the uh, so many startups share their problems uh, so with you. And if you take it personally, in a way, I'm feeling you burnt you burn you out. But generally, the approach, in my opinion, should be a much more friendlier very professional approach, tell them exactly what they can and cannot do. Let them also do their mistakes in many and, and, and accept the fact that not all the clients 
do what, what you tell them to do. I was in a call last week. I was actually representing an accelerator and I was in investing in a new startup. And we had a very aggressive call with the lawyer representing the startup. And we tried and analyze why did that happen. And, you know, during the call, he said things like, my clients are uh, young and naive. I know what's good for them. And he, he stretched his advice far beyond the contract that was in front of us. He, he simply started negotiating commercial issues, which is totally fair. But when you have the commercial, the business people, the principals on the line, my tendency is to let them speak directly and see, maybe take a step back when it comes to the core business aspects. Now, his approach was so different than mine. I mean, he said, listen, I'm going to manage also the business side. I'm also going to tell you exactly what's right and wrong. And uh, maybe it fits certain startups, but the clients that choose to work with me, they look for something else. Trust is being replaced by a lawyer. By putting a, a lawyer in between the two sides, sometimes it skews the communication in a way that people are trying to kind of like arm wrestle each other into a better position. So it's a very good point again. I mean, I had startups that I represent in a way could be friends of each other. There is a lot of, of you know, uh, resemblance between them. Some shared values in, in communication style, in stages, in how they want to build their companies. Yeah, exactly. And also, but also on the approach or the place they put their lawyer uh, in their company. Mm, so and, they I see, and I'm comparing this to other partners in my firm, not other firm. You see that they, they attract a different crowd of clients. It really, really depends on the bond and the connection that you create. People, you know, you, in order to achieve that, you really need to have a special informal relationship with your client, especially given the fact that we are in the 21st century. Many of my colleagues are still thinking on 20th century, 19th century uh, approaches to uh, attorney-client relationship. This is what I'm trying to change. You're going about it in a way that I'm sure comes at a cost. I mean, your availability is out of this world, beyond what I could expect from, in a way, from, from colleagues. I can't remember that it's been more than, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 hours before you or, or one of the team had gotten back to me. I can reach out with a legal matter or a business matter in WhatsApp or an email or Slack or hop onto your office and I'll always feel somewhat welcome, as welcome as I can be in a lawyer's office. Appreciate uh, it. I mean, does that, does that ever kind of overflow you? Did you ever find yourself having to kind of hold back some of your availability? Because, I mean, you're also a father, right? Yes. And, and a partner. I do. I am. Yeah. Uh, I have two, two daughters and uh, it comes at a great price. It also makes, I mean, it's very, in a way, unique to the type of law that I'm practicing. And this is why it makes it very demanding. I think in a way more than other professions. In many cases, clients uh, would value more a prompt, a quick response over uh, a well-analyzed, you know, documented response. This is how the clients 
you know, work and this is how they run their their show. So have to you have to work at their pace, at their at their based on their values and so on. And it's extremely demanding. It's extremely demanding. I am I am really trying to see how how I can survive, uh, you know, for the long term. But I'm doing doing an effort to be 24 hours available. I start my day. I have a, a gush of about 10 emails, five to 10 emails coming from Japan or, or the or Asia. Continuing to the Israeli workday. Um, now that you know we're in Corona, we are working basically around the clock. I mean, uh, you're also working from home, so every hour is legitimate. And then, so you work, and then at about four in the afternoon, there's a sudden increase in email traffic because people in the East Coast woke up. Then you see the same pattern three or four hours later, West Coast. And uh, it's basically around the clock. So there's like 16, 18, 20 hours of the day where people are there. This is what we're trying to... Uh, I mean, this is... It, it happens very often. Uh, we are trying to see how we, you know, differentiate between real urgent matters and less urgent matters. It's a challenge, but it's a lot of sacrifice. That's for sure. Yeah. I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but, but what's the end game? You're saying... How can I survive this intensity for the long run? It's not sustainable. Walking, being available to your work 18, 19 hours out of the day. Um, I mean, it's not sustainable for the long run, especially that you have a, you have a rich personal life, right? You cook, you have a family, you have hobbies. Uh, you enjoy being around people outside of work as well. I mean, startups are often confronted with the questions of how do you scale? Right? How do you make this work, you know, 10 times uh, uh, in a bigger scale, 10 times? How do you think about your future as a lawyer? How do you provide that level of service, of intimacy, of availability? So uh, it's a, a huge dilemma. I, I really don't have a clear answer to it. What I can say is that the more you mature, the more you gain experience. Uh, there are things that change. I am focusing much more time today on CEO, one-on-one uh, -on -one advice, counseling, strategy calls and things like that while at the earlier stages of my career I was more focused on drafting contracts so the sort of advice that you give is is done differently the seniority of the people that you speak to is also different the stages of the startups that you work with are they they grow with you so their needs are changing so there is hope in the end of the tunnel. I mean, you simply know, you need to know how to adjust and need to have great people that work with you. And in some cases, you know, the people that I chose and they chose also me you know, to work together with me are, are better than me, you know, better lawyers than me. And I love it because it completes me. It extends our abilities. I think that's the recipe. The biggest value I think uh, you can bring and keep bringing would be in, in your understanding of the startup uh, life journey and the understanding of all the stakeholder dynamics, VCs, co-founders, uh, executives, and so on. So something that a younger lawyer would meet for the first time, you've already been there, done there, you have some sort of an understanding of how it will unfold. You sound very old. Okay. Yes. You've been doing this for what, 15 years? Something like that. How much is 15 years in a, in a lawyer's years? Dog's life. <laughs> it's a century. It's a century. There you go. You're like the Gandalf of uh, tech lawyers. So 
in that regard, I can map few types of interactions uh, that you would have with your startups. And I want us to go a little deeper into each and every one of them. One would be planning, right? I'm thinking of a company. I'd reach out to you saying, ah, we have this idea. It's me and another friend of mine. What should we do? So what would our interaction look? And it's very early on. It's an idea. Maybe we've gone to an accelerator, but still no product, no team. Yeah, so I work with a lot of uh, clients at these very early stages. <clears throat> it's very light on legal. There's a lot of business and a lot of mentoring that you'd, you're expected to do there. And you can really make an impact. I mean, you can really influence the startup and uh, makes me, you know, excited to do it. This is why it encourages me to do it. So in many cases, there is a lack of understanding of a lot of things, you know, um, the way to structure the founder's relationship, you know, how to to uh, set the rules and framework for uh, the huge adventure that they're starting together. We're talking um, about a founder's agreement. Founder's agreement, for instance. How do we split the company? Exactly. Who decides on what? Who decides on what? Who is taking what role? How much time each person invests? Are there any third parties that are somehow involved, you know, university uh, mm. and medical institutions, employers? Isn't it, isn't it weird that so early on, I mean, it's me and my buddy, we started together and now we want to go on a venture. It feels almost unnatural to the relationship to bring in a lawyer. What I don't the... think so. It's, it's, uh, it's like saying it's unnatural to take your two-week-old child to a doctor. Or it's unnatural to, you know, give him certain, uh, uh, I'm not saying even medicine, giving him, give certain type of food to nourish him. It is very wrong to think that a startup lawyer is there to only help when the shit hits the fan. I mean, that's really um, a very inaccurate approach and inaccurate understanding of our purpose. And uh, we are really there to help you use the bicycles on your own. We are there to ensure that you're doing the right thing and you're aware of things. If you can continue the comparison to, you know, a, a newborn, there are so many risks. There are so many things that can go wrong. Requires a lot of experience and in a way guidance. So you need to nourish it and you need to assist. I mean, so the, the, the sooner they, they talk to you, the more frequently they, they speak with you, this is how you help them. So first of all, we need to examine their uh, idea. We need to see if their uh, startup is brings about certain legal issues that might create you know, problems down the road. For instance, anything that has to do with privacy issues, uh, things that require certain reg regulation. These are things that could really uh, influence um, their uh, business in the future and we need to at the very beginning try and map them and understand where we meet them and how we meet them and how we overcome them there's a lot of things to, that have also have to, you know have to do with the intellectual property uh, ensuring we are protecting the idea trying to write a patent register a patent uh, as soon as we can if there is something that you know you can protect Certain areas, for instance, uh, digital health or, or, or health, health sciences and so on cannot survive without, you know, patents at the very beginning. 
So you also need to be there to, to, to guide your clients to do it. A lot of things that have to do with tax issues. People are n never aware of them. And uh, the time, the time you open your, you, you incorporate, you open your company, the way you structure the relationship with the founders uh, between the founders, what will happen if somebody leaves, how would that impact tax issues? How do you transfer your technology into the company? There's so many mistakes that people can, can do and um, they're not aware of it. Also, how you speak to others, you know, people around you, people that help you create the logo, your friend that, you know, you had beer with uh, at, the local, at, the, at the local bar and will come two years later claiming half the startup and things like that. Things that are, you know, risks that are surrounding us, that are around us, and um, that you re there are ways that you, you can really mitigate, you can really combat in advance. We hear the statistics about startup failure, 90-something percent fail. And when we think of the reason startups fail, a lot of times mm -hmm. we say, okay, it's, it's the founders, they didn't work out, they couldn't agree on stuff. The technology wasn't right, wasn't mature. They were unable to raise money. But, I mean, the reasons for, for early startup failure are, could be so varied. Just like you said, maybe miscalculating how, many, how much percentage we're giving to the people who are helping us in the beginning instead of a paycheck. Here's take a, take a percent of the company, making the company uh, unappetizing for investors because so much of it has already been given away. Or not understanding that uh, we're operating in unregulated territory, which means some sort of law could come in and just blow us out of the water. For example, could be the food delivery. You know, the, these are contractors. They don't work for the company. And all of a sudden, a lobby that says, no, 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 these guys have to work for you. They have to be treated as employees. And the company's business model doesn't survive that transition. They can't really treat everyone as employees. So these types of things you guys help with, help resolve, help create clarity very early on. Fascinating. So important. So I would say maybe an hour or two hours with a lawyer, a tech lawyer, early in the journey would probably pay dividends later on. Yeah, again, but I don't want to, this to come out very arrogant. I am not, as you mentioned before, I am not the entrepreneur. And I am, in the end of the day, a service provider. And I am there to help. Mm -hmm. And I'm there to do whatever I can for them to succeed. But it's their baby. It's their baby, it's their life, it's their risk in a way, and um, I cannot, you know, regard this as my own. And also, I need to put my place in, you know, proper perspective. As I mentioned before, I am. They are far more talented than me. They are also risk takers, and so on. I am their lawyer. I'm there to assist them, but I'm not the startup. I am not the center of attention. And unfortunately, that's not the approach many, you know, colleagues take. We are there really, you know, to support. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I also have my own personal like, graveyard of uh, startups. Uh, I have uh, startups that started with me and only on their third attempt managed to, uh, to uh, hit the jackpot or, you know, to, you know, do a home run. But uh, we failed together in a way really depends on the type of the entrepreneur and uh, some of them i can really see that failure or the first failure the second failure really made them 
much better than they were before. But I also take, you know, uh, take the risk that I'll, my startups would be part of the statistics of failure. That's part of the game. That's interesting because it takes us into the business model that you guys operate. If you're working in a startup that hasn't raised a substantial amount of money or that is not generating revenue, your ability to collect money charge for your services is also limited yes so by participating you put yourself under tremendous risk yes how much in percentages tell would me you say, if you have to put a percentage next to it how much of your time is spent with startups that are still very very high risk so we can talk about this for hours i mean here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? Sold! Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. First of all, you, you do adapt your uh, fee structure to the abilities and needs of your startups. In many cases, you are taking the risk, meaning you are, uh, you're not getting paid. You are working around the clock, but you're not getting paid only until the time they raise money. But for this to succeed, um, you really need to carefully pick your clients. You really need to make sure you're taking them, you know, the right founders. You, are, you have the right diversity in your portfolio. And there are certain, you, you are constantly monitoring what the VCs are doing around the world, not just here. What, what are the, the trends? What are and the industries that would be more appealing, more fundable, if you may? Yeah. And there are certain areas that you are not touching anymore. So you really need to know how to take the risk. You are acting in a way like a venture capital fund uh, in the sense that it's part of your model to have certain startups in your portfolio that will fail but you do need to have a few uh, gems that would help you overcome the the if the basically the loss of, of funds loss of your work time 
we are trying to understand that this is the 21st century and what was good in 1990, what was good in 2010 is not relevant to 2020. And especially how, you know, the world is, the world is changing due to COVID. I mean, it's a new reality. So you have to adapt, you have to uh, be flexible and you need to read and, and breathe your, your clients. You need to understand what they need, how they want to get it. And, and sometimes they can't even put it into words. In many cases, they can't. They, they, in many cases, they can't. Like you go to your doctors and you say, I have a stomach ache. You don't really know what's behind it. Yeah, you don't go in saying, I need you to prescribe me uh, antibiotics and this and that because... So many startups actually do take that approach also with their, like they do, they would do uh, with their doctor. They would Google everything and they would come to their doctor and they would analyze their medical condition. And we also have clients that are uh, super smart like this. I love them, but I'm telling them, listen, you guys are doing what you do amazingly. Focus on your, uh, on, on promoting your startup. Le let me handle the legal aspects. Let me do the research. Trust me, you know, be creative everywhere you can. If you can go through, if you can enter through the door, just come through the window, be innovative, invent yourself every day, but stop when it comes to your legal aspect. I mean, that's not the place you need to show your uh, creativity, so to speak. It sounds very conservative and boring, but brings about a lot of experience. So, uh, It, it makes sense because if you Google uh, symptoms for a disease, uh, because then, then obviously you're going to come up with something very, very dark. It's cancer and you're dying. Uh, and also, you... <laughs> yeah, there are also other things that really influence that. I mean, for, you know, investors see a lot of startups. They see so many uh, great teams. The minute there is the slightest shadow of any legal issue, Investors will simply run away, and it makes perfectly sense. They cannot be in a legal risk. The minute there is any possible problem that has to do you know, with legal, then it's not, it's not worth it for them. So what I'm saying is that you need, really need to, be, to make sure your, your legal aspects are well in order and do not try and you know, invent the wheel there. If you so, want to make shortcuts... Do them elsewhere. One thing is avoid shortcuts. Second thing is if there is something that might become a problem, it will surely become a problem. <laughs> And the third thing would be... Can you, give a, can you give an example as to some of the common mistakes that startups do when it comes to their legal affairs? Yeah, many people you know, talk to everyone. They start with certain amount of founders. For various reasons, one of the... founders uh, left and they don't really you know take care of that they just say it's going to be okay sometimes they conceive the idea together with somebody else sometimes they are developing something as part of uh, a forum either a university or a academia or part of an employer and they don't understand that they are effectively are not the owners of of their own startup so that's One mistake. An example would be if uh, I use my company laptop to work outside of working hours on something, uh, the company may have a claim to the thing I've created. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, but what do you mean? I've done it. It was on my own personal time. 
at home. It has absolutely nothing to do with the company's core business right. yet. So you need to prove it. I mean, you're, you're, the burden of proof is on you. So, and you need to, and yesterday I had this, this exact discussion with a, with a great team. And they told us, listen, it's all kosher. We're doing it at home. We're doing it on weekends and so on. But, but I told them, listen, you need to, there's the likelihood of your employer saying anything is very low. But this is not the approach. You have a very big elephant in your room who is actually your future investor. And your investor will ask those questions even if there is, uh, if there is no chance that your, your employer would ask them. So you need to come ready. You need to be prepared to have answers to everything in advance. And you have to you know, adapt your narr- the narrative of your story accordingly. So we see many, many mistakes. We see, we see people postponing the time they open a company because they heard advice that only when they have, you know, secured an investment, that's the right time to form a company. It's an absolute huge mistake, in my opinion. And so it creates tax issues. It creates IP issues. It's, it stalls so- the deal because if I need to have some place to put the investment in and I don't have a company set up, now I'm in a race against time and, and the deal is getting cold. That could be one of the things that would happen, the bad things. But there are more complicated things like, um, you know, creating a company where there is value already before uh, the incorporation. This, this would mean you have a tax liability. These are things that you can prevent if you have a responsible adult in your company that advises you. And if you are, if you are, your sensors are aware or alert enough to spot the issue. So that's, that's, that's one thing. The lack of founders agreement or a founders agreement that was not properly drafted uh, is, could, could end up in a catastrophe. Disregarding your intellectual property, treating it as if you own it always automatically. It's also a bad assumption. What about the hiring mistakes? I mean, some companies would just download the template. They would read it. They would say like, okay, seems reasonable. Let's just edit the name, ID number, and salary and send it on. Does that open you up for all sorts of problems? So this is a question that somebody asked me at least twice a week, especially in the accelerators that I I work with. Um, You can really get amazing templates today online, really very good contracts. And it's very tempting. And it's also, you know, normally most of the law firms that offer them, it's a honey trap marketing technique, which is very clear. I don't know how it's people don't see it. So, yes, you have the chance of being able to download a founder's agreement template or an employment agreement template from websites of great law firms. And you have high chance that this would work. But it's the same like you have, you know, online, you can find instructions to do an open heart surgery at home. There is a certain chance that this, the operation will succeed. Yeah. Kind of like a recipe. And it's a recipe that, you know, you can pull out of a tooth also at home. You can download instructions on how to do it. But I'm also, I'm thinking, thinking to myself also, if you, you know, we have a very, very cooperative and uh, and easy and and uh, 
welcoming fee arrangements, I'm asking myself the question, if I had a startup, why would I want to just download templates? I would want to go and ensure the best professionals are helping me. I have the best team on all aspects. I have the best accountant in town. I have the best co-founder. I have the best lawyer. I would not want this to be based on accidental templates that I, I download. Unfortunately, people don't speak about it enough, but we see many startups that download templates and they come to us later with when there's this horror happening, when they see things they didn't think of, aspects they didn't take into consideration because the templates are limited. It doesn't mean that lawyers should not adapt to the 21st century and work uh, online and work efficiently. It, does, it has nothing to do with it. These are two different things, in my opinion. And there are so many ways for us to uh, improve our service and make it more accessible you know, to uh, 25-year-olds that are launching a startup, not necessarily via templates. I mean, it's, it's, it's nice, but I wouldn't base my success on it. There is process of uh, adapting the needs and adapting the requirements to the current situation. There is a much higher degree of maturity but we also see a lot of mistakes that investors are doing. And we see a lot of patterns and that investors are, uh, you know, adhering to or how they fall into, uh, so to speak, traps that uh, entrepreneurs prepare for them, how they are, their decision-making is impacted from irrelevant or by irrelevant things. And in many cases, it's not uh, necessarily an indication of, real capability. The fact that somebody used to be an officer in an elite intelligence unit in the army does not mean he knows what he's doing when it comes to the business world. The fact that you have a a founder that failed twice, burned millions of dollars to investors, does not always mean the third attempt would be a huge success. There are so many things that, you know... uh, that influence investors who are irrelevant, in my opinion. Now, every investor knows everything better than everyone else. They have, they have the money, so they think they they know and better than everyone else in that sense. And but we are seeing so many mistakes. It ha- happens from you know, uh, both on both sides of the game, um, picking the wrong startups, uh, lack of management skills. No real added value. Uh, no really, real added value as in the VC won't add real added value? Or yeah, in, startups many, in many cases you, you need... I'm also challenging my, my uh, startups to carefully pick their investors, even if they are an extremely... We have some startups that are really... I mean, people are throwing term, sheet on them, term sheets on them. We have certain startups in our portfolio that in the middle of a deal um, received a term sheet um, that was just double devaluation. I mean, things that are amazing. And same as investors pick their startups very carefully, we think that the good startups need to very carefully also pick their investors. So 
the fact that somebody managed a VC fund does not mean anything about his his business capability, unfortunately. The fact that somebody sold the company to Google also doesn't always mean that um, next in his next challenge is also capable of selling that company or that he had figured that out in advance and he knew from the very beginning that this company would get sold. No, it's a lot to do with chance and uh, being the right place in the right time. It's very subtle, the, the, the difference between the uh, empathy and compassion and how much slack you cut founders because they're doing it for the first time but when it comes to a legal test you know ah sorry it's my first time starting a company is not an excuse it won't get you it won't get you out of a unfortunately not it's very it's it's a much tougher uh, situation the scenario you discussed where we're sitting over a beer and we're discussing an idea and i go and i run with that idea and i build a company around it i i experience things like that i mean it comes from Stuff I really saw happening. Because when we approach the idea of a venture of some sort, you know, we approach it in a friendly, constructive, very optimistic prism. And all of a sudden there's money involved and there's interests and things get very ugly very quickly, potentially. So it's about, it's not about, ah, I don't, I, I won't speak to a lawyer just yet. I don't want to, I don't want to ruin what we've built here. And actually, no, it's, you're not ruining what we've built here. You're not you're dampening sa- saving it. You're saving it. You're creating clarity very early on when there's nothing at stake but potential. And then when things mature and there's money involved and stakes and equity, you already know where you stand. Yeah, but we must also remind people that it's not every lawyer is different. There are lawyers who are focusing on high tech. And there are lawyers that are focusing on other areas. Same as you go to your doctor, you go to the relevant department in the hospital. Not every doctor knows how to treat a particular patient. How many, how many um, emails a day you get? Like, you know, can you cancel my parking ticket? Like, no, but I see, I see a lot of, you know, people that, I mean, I'm not a real estate lawyer. I am not a litigator. Somebody that would ask me to litigate something in court is doing a, you know, personally to litigate. It's like it's a suicide mission for me. Why should I do it? And the same thing you see people that are picking lawyers who are not are great lawyers, but are not relevant to startup world. Also, not every high tech lawyer is a startup lawyer. It's also very different. You, the sort of advice you give Cisco or you give uh, Facebook is not the sort of advice you give to people uh, startup. You require, you need to have a different skill set also on, in the way you deal with those clients. So you need to really carefully pick your advisors. Another very uh, no, well-known phenomenon that we see is that, you know, it's, as you mentioned before, it's if there is an ability to, you know, get advice, just get as much as you can. But we also see a lot of CEOs that are over-consulting. Over-consulting. He, he or she speaks with everyone. And very soon, very quickly, they're incapable of making a decision. And then they make the, the most uh, irrational decision normally. And so you also need to be aware that over-consulting is a big mistake. And you also need to very carefully pick the ones you, you speak with.
The model is working because the law firms in Israel and around the world that have adapted and really have a DNA who is in favor of startups, who is, who is accept, accepting startups, and that's not a given statement. Not, it's not happens everywhere. They have also adapted their fee models to allow their early stage clients to call them on a daily basis, receive advice. They've also um, ensured that the procedures that they do are very efficient and so on. So I really don't understand if there are, if your, if your law firm is offering you, you know, to take, to be a risk taker with you. To, despite the fact that that's your own startup, and some law firms are really offering to defer or postpone payment until you raise money. So you're not taking a risk. Why are you thinking twice? Why do you think you are smarter than your lawyer? Why can't you look at you know mistakes that people have done or things that are common in the last 50 years? How arrogant would that be to say you know better than all of that. I mean, and we see people that they think they know everything. I mean, we see CEOs that this is the first time they raise money, but they are sure that they know what they're doing. They are sure they know how to handle the situations. I mean, I'm doing 50, 60 deals a year. I have slightly more experience than them. But again, you see people, people are so certain with what they do, and they think they have it all covered. But no, but that's not the case, unfortunately. So there's two parts of it. There's the, uh, there's the part of, of informing decision-making processes by simulating, by understanding the, the implications, fine, discussed, covered. And the other part is, let's call it hygiene. Let's make... It's a good word. Making sure that, that everything is filed correctly, that everything is where it should be, that we are covered, that it's the... It's the, it's the risk minimizing aspect of the, you know, bureaucratic paperwork side that makes the company investment worthy. Exactly. And people should not, um, disregard these kind of things. I mean, it's, these are things that kill investments that kill startups. Like and what? Like, like not having a signature and a document? Having, you know, playing around with your cap table. Um, not properly reflecting your equity. This will explode. People give promises to people. People give... Like, like verbal contracts. Verbal contracts, sometimes also in writing. People do terrible mistakes. Like an email would be considered a contract in some, in some I scenarios. Think your cap table is, is the only holier document after your cap, before your cap table is the, the Bible. It's the Magna Carta. The, I mean, you cannot risk any mistakes when it comes to your your share capital you cannot be question mark above your head when it comes to that you have a data room ready that can be shared with an investor within, a data room what does that within, mean within an hour it's basically a um, cloud space uh, that you know organizes that includes all your uh, your contracts everything that you ever signed uh, your company documents your founder document and so on and it's part of the legal due diligence. We see people that are postponing all of this, and then they manage to get the most amazing term sheet. They get the best investor in, in, in the world, and only then they start with the legal preparations. And then 
this looks terrible. I mean, investor would simply walk away. It, it doesn't make sense that he will have to wait for three weeks until they open a data room. So be prepared as much as you can. Think five steps ahead. Also think how to construct your investment and uh, what type of investment is relevant for you. Do you need that big 3 million investment right now or 10 million investment right now? Or maybe it's better for you to take a half a, half a million now and go back to the market in, in half a year's time in a much stronger uh, offering. I mean, there are many, many things. Not every, you know, people sometimes lose their uh, objectives. So there's a few things here. One is just as you would walk tirelessly to get the product ready in time, you'd want to make sure that you have your financials in orders because when the time is right, soon after they buy into your product, they'd want to see what's going on behind the scenes. And if that's not ready, the product won't mean anything. In the end of the day, people get investment, people succeed because of what they do, because of their technology, not because of their lawyers. But if there is a way to uh, help, to ensure you are taking the safest route, you are avoiding the mistakes, you are consulting with somebody that has the experience, then do it. I mean, do not think twice. My startups raise millions of dollars because of their talent, not because of my talent. And my capabilities have nothing to do with it. I was just there as in a way, you know, the gray hair uh, or gray beard, in my case, uh, person that is there to ensure or to help them or to push, give them that little push. But it's all to do with their talent. Okay? Lawyers must not forget this. And many do. I respect that. I, I appreciate that. And it comes across in the engagements that we've had uh, that you know that end of the day, it'll be the startup's decision and the startup's responsibility and the startup's faith. Where would the Israeli innovation system be without international firms that help them scale and go and do, you know, export at a large, large scale? So what we see in Tel Aviv is really a world phenomenon and not just in Tel Aviv, in Israel, of innovation. There's one of the hotspots of startups in the world. Everybody knows this. It's it's an amazing industry. But this place is, the amount of opportunities we have here is compared to about three neighborhoods in Tokyo or uh, a street in New York. I mean, it's not even close to what's going on around the world. Many Israelis uh, think that we are the center of the universe, but that, that's not true. That's simply not true. Um, people let their ego and arrogance sometimes shadow their understanding of how big the world is. And you see this clearly when you are interacting with international uh, investors or with corporations that are not coming from the usual suspect countries. You know, they're not com coming from the UK or the US. They're actually coming from Germany actually coming from Japan, also not China. And these are, you know, this, this, these are things that make me very excited because it's, you know, part of my practice also to work with these companies. You see, you know, the third and the fourth largest economies and the potential 
for Israeli technology there is huge. It's gigantic. It's much, sometimes it's much more than you would see in Palo Alto. And there's far less competition. Israel is as appreciated as any other country there. I think that we, if we are constantly looking at either, you know, we fail and think that the success would come from Israel or we think the only path is the U.S., that might work in most cases, but there's, there's an ocean, a gigantic ocean of opportunities that we miss. I'm really trying to expose uh, some of my clients to the less obvious uh, places and doing a lot of missionary work, as you know, in these countries. I believe that this, is, this could be a very strong alternative to what we have. So just as you help companies minimize their risk and exposure, the other side of it will be opening them up and bringing new perspectives, new ideas, new opportunities something I really appreciate. You mentioned missionary, and I want to speak on one last thing that I think is, is pretty close to your heart, and that's um, the changes. <laughs> Baking. Baking, cooking, and privacy. privacy. Yeah. <laughs> so what do we see in the world of privacy, and how does that, uh, what does that mean for startups today? This privacy, you know, five, ten years ago, was another issue down the list of issues that startups need to, you know, ensure they, they, they are, are covered. No, I think like five or 10 years ago, that was maybe issue number 17 in the long list of things to be, you know, aware of. I think in 2020, it's one of the top three issues. I think in this world, you will not be able to succeed if you're not thinking of the enormity of privacy and how it impacts your business well in advance. And we see it because there is ever-changing regulation and things that you, we could have done before we cannot do anymore. And we see it in the European Union, we see it in the US, we see it in Israel, in other places. And we mean things like how we capture data, how we store data, how we then use, leverage, sell, exactly. resell data. Uh, so many of the services that we use run on data. Absolutely. Our emails, our calendars, our social networks, half of the things that happen on our phone are leveraging data. And you're saying so many startups that, that have had data-driven business models now have to think twice about how to use this data because of privacy. But not just them, also... You know, sometimes you need to worry about privacy issues because your customer is required to adhere to standards, certain standards. Maybe your own startup is not does not have the interaction with users or is not the one that needs to do it. But your customer, your end, your if it's a business, your end user would expect you to work according to law. In many cases, we see situations, oh, even this week I had this question, no chance any regulator in the EU would ever catch me. But it doesn't work like this, because if you work with every company from the EU, they are on the hook, and they are being monitored, and they would expect you, if, you, if they let you access their IP, their product, their servers, they would expect you to also 
adhere to the same standards that they adhere to. So it's it's relevant to everyone. It's relevant to those that treat that data, but those that don't. It's becoming a very, very heavy burden and expensive burden on startups, which we haven't seen before. Fascinating. Guy, this has been very interesting, very informative. I think it's, uh, we're speaking about startup nightmares, so we have to include the legal uh, perspective in this regard. Where should people go to learn more about you and the work you guys are doing? <laughs> so you can visit my LinkedIn on our website and Google me. Maybe uh, I, I did a lot of, uh, I wrote a lot of, uh, and I was interviewed quite a lot recently and uh, just ask around town. I would say <laughs> walking with you, it's like walking with the mayor. Yeah. Uh, but I would say... I still that... have a lot you know, to learn and a lot to improve. And I am not taking any, you know, the approach that I know everything. And, uh, and things are also changing. Things I, I knew uh, two years ago might not be relevant today and so on. So it's a very dynamic situation. Is there anything we haven't talked about that you feel is important to bring to the front of the stage today? I think that uh, I think the, the the essence is the twenty the, what we mentioned before about the twenty first century. I think you cannot launch a business today without thinking of things that you didn't you know weren't important a few years ago. You are part of the big world, and you need to think of things that are happening overseas at the very beginning. And you need the sort of the services that your lawyers would provide you should be much more holistic. So you need to really carefully pick your uh, advisors. And it's really like picking your founders. It's, there is a risk, but there's, there's a lot of reputation at hand. And you can really find those that are relevant for you. So to summarize that, I would say that if you used to think about your lawyer as a service provider... Now you need to think about them more as a strategic partner. Absolutely. With that guy, I'd like us to finish. Thank you so, so much for your generosity, for your insights and for your expertise. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure as well. And I am so lucky to have spent these 90 minutes with you without having to pay for it. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I know where you live, so I'll send the invoice. Please do. We'll send some coffee back to you. Thank you so, so much. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.